In the name of the one who was and is and is to come. Amen. As we gaze on that second candle, it is worth noting what we easily forget sometimes and what the medieval theologian Bernard of Clairvaux so well articulated in his teaching on the nature of this holy season, which includes not just one advent, but three advents in the rich tapestry of scripture and song and metaphor of the season, there are several parallel narratives going on, and so it can, can help to untangle them from time to time. Bernard of Clairvaux said that the first advent we celebrate is the one that we remember in the coming of Christ in history, the Christmas story. He said that the second advent is the one we anticipate in the future return of Christ in glory, his second coming. And the third advent, he said, is the one that we acknowledge in the coming of Christ whenever we gather in his name to pray, to worship, to serve the world. Undoubtedly, today's church tends to focus most on Christ's first coming, the Christmas story itself, with trees and greens, carols and crush sets, pageants and presents, we are good at preparing for the nativity. And we need these traditions to steep us in the sacred stories. Nevertheless, to neglect that second advent is to rob the tradition's power to hold us in the seasons of our lives when that rich serum blue feels so right. I know, Georgia lost yesterday. I know, I know. There's some grief here. Without that second advent, we might be left with only nostalgia to sustain us. As if we could somehow play act our way into a deeper joy. Our remembrance of the child in the manger never disappoints. But where is the room for waiting, for longing, for grief, for vulnerable anticipation? Where is the space to cultivate true and courageous hope? The truth is that hope is always a risky business. To join our voices to the hope of the church in Christ's return in power and great glory, as we say, is downright audacious. In a haunting fusion of gospel Americana, paired with poignant social commentary, Nashville-based singer-songwriter Kate Campbell offers the following lyrics. She sings, I bought a pack of seeds, Tennessee Bradleys, the best homegrown you'll find. How it happens, I don't know, must have been the miracle grow. Oh, I cannot believe my eyes and my tomato bed, a holy image, blood red. I see him on the vine. This just might be a sign. Help me. I'm confused. So many brands to choose. Jesus and tomatoes coming soon. 
The remaining verses go on to describe the enterprise the protagonist develops after her immaculate tomatoes become a lucrative highway tourist attraction with the sign that says, Jesus and tomatoes coming soon. Capitalizing on a broader culture in our country whose values are sometimes questionably Christian and yet pervasively messianic. We've all heard proclamations of the second coming used to promote a naive pie-in-the-sky kind of escapism that shirks human responsibility through the sentiment that Jesus is coming soon, so let the world burn. Certainly, few of us are ready to hold up signs at the street corner to wager on the second coming, nor am I suggesting it to be clear. Nevertheless, how often in our churches, in our workplaces, in our civic life, do we convince ourselves that if we just get the right pastor, the right chairperson, the right president in place, then all of our problems will be fixed. We will have arrived. And yet, as embodied and demonstrated in the life and ministry of Jesus, such messianic expectations are more often a time-tested recipe for making scapegoats out of saviors. Indeed, Jesus, God's Messiah, chosen one, was never the military ruler Israel hoped for. Instead, this Jesus offers the image of a servant king, an image our weary world so desperately needs and perpetually rejects. The good news today is that for the people of God, hope springs from the ground up. In Isaiah's most evocative prophecy, he says that a shoot will come forth from the root of Jesse. Hope will come from a stump. And so we are told divine hope will not spring forth ultimately from the halls of worldly power, but from the dry and cut off and seemingly desolate places in our world and in our lives. One of the most striking moments in the movie Selma several years ago was its depiction of the event that's come to be known as Turnaround Tuesday, when in obedience to a court order, Martin Luther King Jr. peacefully led his gathered assembly of 2,500 marchers to stand down on the Edmund Pettus Bridge short of crossing the county line. But they stood down, not without first, interestingly enough, praying. And in this beautiful image on the screen, following King, the thousands who followed him joined suit like a ripple in the ocean as the entire assembly fell to its knees. To the average onlooker, it might have seemed as though They were surrendering, that the movement was surrendering as they lowered their bodies to the ground in ostensible defeat. And yet those with the eyes of faith to see, to them, they were not bowing so much to their enemies as they were bowing before the God who sustained them. 
And you get the sense in that moment on screen that Reverend King knew he could not do the work that God was calling him to do without the Spirit's grace and power. And the next day they would try again, and not in vain, coming one step closer to liberation. To invoke Episcopal priest John Zoll, when our ability to let go and receive the surprising gift of hope arrives, it will most often be wrought not of virtue, but of our own frustration and exhaustion. Dear saints, where are you exhausted, dried up, overwhelmed? Like a shoot from the stump, of Jesse. The promise of Isaiah's vision is that hope meets us, surprises us there. Of course, with the privilege of history, the Christian tradition cannot help but to interpret that shoot as Jesus, thus placing him in the royal line of Jesse, the father of King David. According to Isaiah, this king shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The scandal of the gospel is that this King Jesus not only comes to serve the poor and the meek with righteousness and equity, this King Jesus not only associates with the poor and the meek, but in a far cry from escapism, this peculiar King Jesus himself becomes poor and meek. Isaiah goes on to offer a startling and compelling vision of what painter Edward Hicks famously dubbed the peaceable kingdom, whereby all the animals, lion and lamb, predator and prey, dwell together in harmony, a little child leading the way. Hicks became somewhat obsessed with this vision, painting 62 different versions of the scene, often depicting the animals and the child in the foreground, while in the background you can see the signing of William Penn's peace treaty with the Native Americans, an act that would lead to the 80-year so-called holy experiment in Pennsylvania as the Quaker community sought to model the peaceable kingdom on earth. As is often the case with these utopian experiments, this holy Quaker experiment eventually unraveled for many reasons, illustrating, I think at least in part, that the peaceable kingdom God dreams for our world ultimately cannot be won solely through channels of legislation or litigation. So the lawyers in the room, you don't have to be the savior this Advent. It's a reminder that even as we who follow Jesus ought to be active in democracy and take a vested interest in policies that promote human flourishing, the care of the planet, peace among the nations, and equity among all God's children, what cannot be externally enforced or controlled is what's inside. Nothing from the outside other than God can increase our internal capacity and willingness to recognize, appreciate, and honor beauty 
beauty in ourselves, in our neighbors, and in God's creation in all its glorious diversity. This beauty is known in our tradition as nothing less than the Imago Dei, the very image of God. To that end, my friends, Advent is for the artists and dreamers, the poets and prophets, songwriters and playwrights. This holy season is for all who seek a deeper beauty and a truer peace in this world, transcending the darkness, divisions, and disappointments we all know. If the second advent of Christ's return is the great mystery through which we cultivate our hope, then that third advent of Christ's presence among us in the here and now is the mystery through which we cultivate our vision to perceive the Holy One at work beyond what our eyes can see and our ears can hear, to see and honor the image of God and the last and the lost and stranger, friend, and foe, and those with whom we share the most in common, and those with whom we could not be more different. It is, to quote Rob Bell, to look out and see a world utterly drenched in God, and then to do something about it for love's sake. What will that look like for you? What will that look like for us in this place? As we bring the longing of our hearts and of our world into the radiance of the Advent light, may we be given the courage and audacity of hope that we may join with God in bringing to life that peaceable kingdom where lion and lamb shall lay down together, where little ones will lead the way. For a shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Jesus and tomatoes, coming soon. <laughs>